0: In today's episode of The Essence of Cool, we chat with singer, songwriter, podcaster, blogger, and author, Christopher Ward. Chris has written songs for Diana Ross, Hilary Duff, Winona Judd, The Backstreet Boys, and many others. But his best-known song is the worldwide number one hit for Alana Miles, Black Velvet, which garnered him the 1990 Juno Award for Songwriter of the Year. In 1984, after a stint in the Second City Touring Company, he helped launch much music as Canada's very first VJ, and wrote a book about it called Is This Live? He has contributed numerous songs to TV soundtracks, such as Instant Star, and can be seen in all three Austin Powers movies as a member of Austin's band, Ming-Ti. On today's show, he makes a case for why Leonard Cohen and Sade are the essence of cool. Let's get started. Christopher Ward, welcome to The Essence of Cool.
1: Bernard, thank you so much for having me. I shall try to stay chill for the next hour.
0: (laughs) You know, I sent a little message out online to say that I was going to be interviewing you. And uh, people, of course, remember you and know you so well for the phenomenon that is Black Velvet as a yeah. mega popular VJ and a judge on the next star. And you were a fabulous. My sit- my daughter actually was talking to me about you this morning, about uh, she- how, how much she loved you as a judge uh-huh. on the next star. Uh, an author of now four books, including this one that I got as a... Uh, Birthday present, I think. Um, probably, uh, yes, Here I'm familiar with that tome. Is yes. this live? It's all <laughs> bits and pieces about much music, both your own reflections as well as uh, reflections from the many BJs and uh, some of the artists. You're a podcaster, you're a blogger. But I first remember you as a singer-songwriter back in the 70s with a great album called Spark of Desire and some fabulous radio hits, Maybe Your Heart, Once in a Lifetime. Tell me about that first... I'm assuming that was the first record deal. Tell me about how that came about and what it was like to work with a major label because it was Warner, right?
1: Yeah, it was Warner. um, And... I mean, it was a pretty great experience. It, the way that those sessions happened was kind of accidental because they were trying to find a producer for me and they wanted to approach, um, Jack Richardson, but you know, that's pretty high priced talent. And he was really at the top of his game. then. this was in the late seventies. Mm-hmm. Um, but what they did is he had another artist from the States that he was producing a guitar player. I've never heard of since named Sandy Toronto. And, um, no, not Toronto, like the city, but <laughs> Toronto. <yeah. laughs> and uh, anyways, uh, they sort of piggybacked me on those sessions. But what it meant is that I had the same, all the same players that Sandy did on his record, which included like Steve Ferroni on drums, wow. who to, I, to this day, I think is the single most exceptional musician that I have ever watched recording live in a studio. And I've seen some really good ones. He uh, is a drummer. People who don't follow you know the inside musical world, he started with the Average White Band, but he played with all kinds of people, including Duran Duran. He was, you know, he played with Eric Clapton. He was in Tom Petty's band for over 20 years. And he's just a staggering talent. So, you know, having Steve Ferrone play on your first <laughs> record, little, and the Brecker brothers were on horns and wow. Moe and Guido Basso. And, oh, you know, man. it was just, I mean, I was agog at the experience you can imagine, right?
0: Yeah, for sure.
1: But, uh, It's one of the the things about having great players and, of course, a producer like Jack Richardson, and there really only is one or was one, um, is that the record still sounds good to my ears. It does. It sounds great.
0: And what was it like to work with sort of the big label machinery in terms of promotion and getting out there and and, uh, pushing the record? What was that like?
1: Well, I remember it was the Canadian uh, office of Warner that I was signed to. So... It wasn't that big a lift for me to get to know everybody personally. You know, there was like a head of national promo. I think at the time it was uh, Larry Green. Do you remember Larry? No, I don't. He was a he was a broadcaster for years. He was one of the early Chem FM guys, and then he went on to be on Jazz FM and so on. This a really great great guy. Right. He passed last year, unfortunately, but um, yeah, just all these different people that I got to know, and I still know them. Um, it's It's more intimate when you're dealing with the local version of a big label than if you're dealing with you know the wider world version of it, so that made it easier yeah.
0: and tell me about hearing your songs on the radio for the first time. <laughs> what was that like
1: its It's pretty much the best thing ever. It's like really a close second to the day that my daughter was born, you know, yeah, I mean it's well, no way I got to factor in Joe Carter's home run. I was there for that, <laughs> Wow. Those, those would be the top three, I think. I mean, you know what? It, I mean, I'm I keep joking about this, but it, it was one of those, you've got to pull off the road and just kind of appreciate the moment and deep breathe because it was just so overwhelmingly exciting. I mean, I've been a radio junkie as a kid, right. and I've been one of those kids that used to collect the charts. And when we went away in the summer, I would make my own charts, and I would move my favorite songs up the charts and other ones down. And, like, I, you know, it was, that's pretty serious. So for example, when black velvet went number one on billboard, that was just, you know, like a lunar landing for me. (laughs) I can imagine. (laughs) It really, it really was. Um, And there was this book called the billboard. I know I'm sort of deviating here, but forgive me. There was a book called the um, billboard book of number one hits and every number one song got a full page. And I remember my first thought with Billboard when Black Velvet went number one. It's like I'm getting a page in the book. You know, <laughs> it's so shallow for me to say this, but it's the truth.
0: Oh, listen, as a songwriter, I mean, I can attest to the rush of uh, hearing that, uh, hearing your song on the radio. But I can't, I can't even imagine what it was like to uh, to experience uh, the phenomena of Black Velvet. Because that must have been crazy. Does it? Does it get old? Do you? I mean, when you hear Black Velvet or any of your songs come on the radio, you, do you still get that rush?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. It's affirmation of a kind that is so essential. Because I mean, being a songwriter, like a professional songwriter, outside of my very few ventures into the world of artistry, it's kind of a lonely business. I mean, you 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 do some collaboration with people, but you also do a lot of work on your own, yeah. and so. Um, you know, when you, when you make that connection with people through your song, um, and you know, they're hearing it on the radios the same time as you are, and people come to you, you know, at various times in your life and say, boy, I remember that song it was really important to me. It's yeah. such, such a point. I mean, these things are huge. They're deeply meaningful. Yeah.
0: I still remember the first time I heard Maybe Your Heart, and I think it was on Chum FM. And it was such, uh, I got such a thrill because it, I really connected to it. You know, it was a, it's a beautiful song and still holds up. Um, Thank how, you. How did you jump from being a singer-songwriter with a deal to being a comedian in Second City?
1: <laughs> well, there was a disaster in between the two. <laughs> Which was? <laughs> uh, well, I was... Um, I was on the road with my band, and uh, gosh, i got to get these details right. I've tried to forget a lot of this. (laughs) But uh, we ran into a bad situation with a club owner who decided they didn't want to pay me. And then that same week, um, the remainder of my tour got blown out um we had a truck that couldn't sustain carrying the gear that we had and we I didn't have enough money to rent a different one I mean, it was just <laughs> all these horrible things happened i sort of dragged myself home to toronto to figure out what i was going to do and um in the you know the time period when i didn't have anybody you know calling me up or talking about making a van or anything i thought well i'm gonna go to the second city workshops and just try to improve my craft as an entertainer. And I, and I took dance classes. I mean, I kind of was like very, you know, mission oriented at that right, point. Right. And, uh, that, that's, that's how that happened.
0: During that time that you were in second city, in fact, when you were up in, uh, in Huntsville, uh, at the Deerhurst Inn, right. Performing, uh, the yeah. second city. Yeah. Um, you were working with Mike Myers. Um, but, uh, you also took a detour at some point and, uh, Drove over to Gravenhurst, which is uh, where I saw you perform the first time with Alana Miles. And Alana, <laughs> at this point, is just a bar act, and in fact, she very nicely let me open her second set every once in a while, which <laughs> That's s- cool. still astonishes me. but uh,
1: <laughs> That's great.
0: Uh, but you took the stage with Alana and sang a blistering version of Take Me to the River. And of course, I know you as this kind of MOR guy. And here you are burning up the stage with Take Me to the River. <laughs> <laughs> do, do, you yeah. long, do you long for those moments to get on stage and really burn it up?
1: Um well that was probably the first time I'd been on a stage performing music in some time right. because of the fact that you know that I had the disaster tour of 81 or whatever it was <laughs> and then and then the, then the record company and the tour and the musicians and the band everything disappeared it just all evaporated in pretty short order so my singing was pretty much just songwriter singing you know in the apartment late at night like hoping that you weren't waking up the neighbors, like going, <laughs> oh, saying, oh, you know, put another little tape recorder, right? Yeah.
0: And at some point in 1983, the same year, you, uh, John Martin gets in touch with you and makes you an offer. Tell me about that because that literally changed your life, didn't it?
1: Yeah, there were a few game changers, and that was definitely one of them. Um, John came to my last show at Second City. Um, at the Firehall Theatre. Uh, it was an afternoon show because I was in the touring company, not the main stage group. Right. And um, I had decided that I was going to be, you know, I was going to leave the touring company. It was after like over a year, almost a year and a half. And it really, I knew that it wasn't my metier. It wasn't what I was going to be doing for the rest of my career. Right. And I just wanted to recommit to writing music, um, developing Atlanta's career and so on. So I quit last show. John comes down to see the show, and John had been a friend of mine, and for some years. And um, so, f- at the end of the show, uh, the way I tell it is that I got uh, a pie in the face, <laughs> an Elvis bust, and an offer from John Martin, which consisted of ah, Christopher, I come to my house on Monday." Like, <laughs> if you've ever met John Martin, you know that that's like verbose, right? Right.
0: <laughs> which led to. Uh, a show called City Limits, yeah, which eventually led to you being the first, if not one of one of the or the first VJ on Much Music. Tell me about that. Much Music, you know, I, I think of it, and I was in TV. Um, in the latter stages of of much music in its prime. And I l- always look to much as kind of the benchmark in terms of, of cool, interesting production. I mean, it really changed the game in terms of how TV was being produced. You didn't have a studio, you didn't have a stage, you
1: didn't have scripts. You, I mean, you know, we had not, By the way, you could take the word cheap and insert that between cool <laughs> and interesting. <laughs> You know, but, but it was definitely, it was seat of the pants all the way, Bernard, but right. you know what, that, that was the joy of it. And, and once you accepted that as the premise upon which the whole thing was founded, it was great. I mean, city limits was really great training being in the second city touring company. It was great training too, in terms of being able to think on my feet, right. but then to do limits the all night show, which we did for about nine months, it was a precursor to much. It was like, they were establishing what the format might be like and how it would feel, And they used it as part of their pitch to the CRTC. And, and, you know, many people, if I recall correctly, didn't really think that, um, you know, that City TV had a prayer of getting the license from CRTC. But they felt that limits and to a great extent, the new music, because they've been already doing that for a number of years, kind of communicated the idea that they were already in the game, that they knew these people. They had all the connections in the music industry, that they had the vibe right. So that's how it all unfolded. Right. How
0: terrifying was it? I mean, that first, that first episode or that first night of m- much music when you go to the entirety of Canada, how did it feel? What was it
1: like? Well, for one thing, in typical city TV fashion, instead of doing, you know, a kind of a straight-ahead approach to a broadcast, and especially one that would be, you know, so significant over time as launching an entire network, they had a party. And so it was just full of drunk people, you know, <laughs> ranting and raving and carrying on, which was actually great training for, you know, moving into the Match Studios sometime later. Um, we were behind a big blue screen. Um, and I was, I'm claustrophobic, so I was really unhappy. <laughs> so, but J.D. Roberts, you know, the ever chill J.D. Roberts was there beside me. He and I were the two first VJs. And he, of course, being the Boy Scout that he is, had a penknife with him. And cut a slit down the center of the blue screen. You couldn't see it if you're watching it, but it meant that for, for sure we'd get, be able to get through in the magic moment when we hit launch, right? Right. And because there was a chance, you know, that we'd be battering against this thing and it wouldn't <laughs> open and I'd be in a state of pure panic and it, it wouldn't have been pretty. But, yeah.
0: And much really made stars of so many great Canadian acts. How do you feel about much today?
1: Well, I don't know about much today. I mean, I I live in the States, so I don't see it for one thing. Right. Um, You know, I mean, I sort of would dip in now and then to see when I'm I'm in Canada to watch, but honestly, I haven't seen it for quite a while, so I can't make any comparison whatsoever, but I I don't imagine that there is a comparison. I mean, what we were doing, I don't know, you could say that it had a best before date and that it was, you know, wacky TV, but you can only be, you know, an out-of-control adolescent for so long, and then you kind of have to, you know, kind of get your act together, as I think, you know, as I think much did. It was a moment in time and a great moment, and I was really lucky to be part of it. And, yeah, we had a lot to do with breaking a lot of Canadian acts. And that, I would say, is the single thing that I walk away from that experience most proud of, yeah. is that we made a difference for, for artists. I mean, people who are still out there working today and having, you know, really good careers, um, and I'm not saying we were the only reason they were successful. They obviously had to have you know serious talent to begin with. But as you know, having serious talent at a certain point in Canada was no guarantee that you were going to have an opportunity to go with that talent or the success that you were shooting for, no matter how good you were. Right.
0: Um, I work quite a bit these days with Rob Proust of uh, formerly of the Spoons of uh, the Spoons. And, yeah, yeah, and he talks <clears throat> uh, very kindly about uh, much and how much supported spoons and uh, and their career and and really launched them as a band in these.
1: you know what though, they were a perfect act for much, right? Um, you know, they had a really strong musical identity. Hmm. They were really good players, and they had a great visual to go with it. I mean, they they had a look and it was. Very much of the moment, and uh, they're also really, really lovely people. So it was, you know, it's like when you meet the people like the Glass Tigers and the Pursuit of Happiness, and you know, all those acts of that era. You know, it's it's easy to get behind people who you like working with.
0: One of the people that uh, popped up quite often on your show on Much, and uh, I think also in City Limits before Much started, is Mike Myers. Tell me about your almost 40-year friendship with Mike. How did that come about, and uh, what prompted you to have him pop in every once in a while very comedically uh, on your show on Much?
1: Well, um, we did meet in the Second City uh, Workshop and as I told you the story of how the audition happened and I was given the job over Mike Myers which is just insane in the touring company. He thinks it's funny too. Um, but then you know we, we, we spent a lot of time hanging out during the days of the touring company and you know a lot of time in the back of a van together and um, I, I used to bring uh, a pair of headphones with a splitter in it so that we could listen to The Clash <laughs> you know, going to and from the gig at, you know, Blue Mountain or Deerhurst Center, wherever we were playing. Right. And then when I left and I got the gig uh, at city limits, um, you know, we were still pals. And in fact, for a while, he and Alana and I shared an apartment in the beach Right. and um, you know, so he would come down and, and we, we, we thought, well, we've got to do something funny here. So he, you know, I said, well, why don't you do Wayne? And he says, Oh, that'd be great. So, Premise was that he would be my cousin Wayne, who was just the sort of this disruptor guy who would come down and you know he'd play with all the controls and he'd bust in on interviews. So I remember there was a guy there I can't remember his name, but he was a guitar player, and we were in the middle of interviewing him and Wayne busts in. I mean we knew it was going to happen and. Wayne He goes, so tell me, how do you do that diddle 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 stuff on the guitar? That's really cool. And the guy's like, oh, well do you do? And he, like, he teaches them how to do it. <laughs> I mean, it was just, you know, it was absurd. But And then he, he did a bunch of other characters on both The Limits and on Much as well. It was great.
0: One of my favorite bits was the yearly fromage special. Tell uh, me how that came about.
1: Well, you know, I'm a believer uh, that you don't put down what you play. I mean, it's to me because you're insulting the fans of those artists if you think you're somehow above it all. Like, we weren't critics or music journalists. I I don't believe that that was our role. And, you know, nobody that I know of on the team really did kind of do that type of thing. So we figured, well, why not one day a week, one day a year, just, like, break the rules and play the absolute worst videos that we've received um, in the past year. And um, because I was on the programming committee, I'd seen a lot of those videos and remembered how horrific they were. We referred to them as the hideos, right? (laughs) And and unfortunately, some of them, you know, by dint of the artist's um, prestige, you know, like Huey Lewis, people like that, We played those videos, right, in regular rotation. So it was really a a fun opportunity to kind of, you know, poke at them. And, um, yeah, so hence Charles de Kellen (laughs) (laughs) there. The latter
0: part of your tenure at Much, you're working a lot. Uh, You start, I'm guessing, this is when you start writing Some of the songs that would end up on the very first uh, Atlanta album. Tell me how. When did the that work start in earnest?
1: Well, Bernard, I mean, I met Atlanta. I think it was in 1979, and uh, we went on a date together. And um, I took her home, and she invited me in. And I thought, yeah, you know. (laughs) So I went in, and she took out her guitar, (laughs) played these songs that she'd written. And I was not disappointed uh, um, because it was all there. I mean, she's beautiful and she has amazing voice and the songs were really good. It was just, you know, kind of jaw dropping experience. So we became a couple and we became musical partners and we started working on writing songs together soon after we started dating, like within weeks or months. And then we started doing demos and it took us seven years to get her a deal. But we, we continued to make music during that entire time period. We wrote songs together, but also I wrote songs on my own. And, you know, she she took to a lot of them. But now you,
0: I'm reading, got turned down a number of times with the, the Atlanta material. Is that true?
1: Oh, yeah, for sure. But that's, you know, that's a timeless tale. I mean, there are so many. I mean, the Beatles got turned down how many times before they finally got signed by the last door they knocked on, you know? Uh, I'm not comparing us to the lads, believe me. But (laughs) it's just a common story that, you know, you need a a champion. You need someone who hears it and goes, that is fantastic. And miraculously, we found that guy. His name was Tunj Aram. He was the head of a for Atlantic Records in New York. And um, i have taken the music to um, Bob Roper at Warner Music. And he'd said, well, this, you know, this is not really right for us, but I know somebody I think it might be. I'm going to send it to him. And then literally I was on a much music tour in my hotel room in Vancouver and I get a phone call. And it's Tunch, and he was Turkish, and he was like, Christopher? And I'm like, yeah. It was, <laughs> Alana Miles, si you I'm like, yeah. She is a star. I want her on my label. Who is your lawyer? <laughs> and it was just like, oh. <laughs> well, my lawyer is Stephen Stone, and here's his phone number. You know? <laughs> um, yeah, talking, well, there's, there's a game changer for you
0: as a singer-songwriter you had three record deals of your own by this time and i guess that, <laughs> that's you know,
1: not a good thing you know, is
0: it <laughs> but, but my point here is that you suffered the 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 vagaries of having a deal you know the ups and downs and men, you know many of them being downs what was it like to suddenly get this amazing deal from a a huge american label
1: well it was an affirmation because you know we've been banging our heads against the wall for seven years. right? And, you know, people always say, well, that I believed in Atlanta, which I absolutely did, but she believed in me. Right. I mean, it was just um, absolutely uh, endless, her spirit and, and commitment to, to me as a song. She used to say to me, you're going to write me a hit song one day. Yeah. I know it. And it was just like, okay, you know. Um, I didn't have as much faith in myself as she had in me. And like you need that kind of commitment. She had the fire, and I, I always thought that she should be an international artist. That you know that she didn't. You know we shouldn't try to localize this kind of talent. And fortunately, Atlantic Records in New York saw it the same way. Since
0: then, you have written for a number of incredible artists: Diana Ross, Hilary Duff, Backstreet Boys. Did those writing opportunities come after? Black velvet hit crazy?
1: Yeah, because, you know, if you move to LA, which I did on the heels of Black velvet success, it's like you get a moment where everybody will pay attention to you. Right. And I got a chance to write with some really amazing people and some really interesting artists. And, um, you know, it's it's all because of, of that song. So, right.
0: And were you writing specifically for certain artists or did you have oh, a yeah. catalogue of of songs and they just chose?
1: Well, I got lots of songs if you need one. But I, uh, I also was involved, in, like for Diana Ross, that was very, very specifically written f- with her, actually, as well as for her. Wow. Um, I mean, other cuts came. Like Winona Judd did a song of mine that had been written for a different artist.
0: Right.
1: That's often the case. You write with or with an artist or for an artist, and for whatever reason, it doesn't click for them, so it goes elsewhere. But it get, gets cut, and that's always a good outcome. Yeah. In the Backstreet Boys song "There's Us" was written for a Canadian television show called uh, "The Next Star," mm-hmm. which was on CTV. Oh, 10 years ago or so now and it was uh it was a wonderful show it was all about the music business and the girl who was the star of it um alex johnson was a terrific actor and a wonderful singer as well and uh, we got to write all the songs that were for her mm-hmm. and that was super fun because we would get together with the production team at the beginning of a week and they would you know we'd be in a boardroom at epitome pictures you know the company that did Degrassi. Mm-hmm. and um we would get a whole brief as to what they were looking for in upcoming episodes and what the characters were going to do. And then we would write songs specifically for those storylines. I mean, it was it was really, really fun. So well, I was totally surprised when this song that we'd written for a teenage girl, suddenly the Backstreet Boys did it. it, it, it the reason it happened is because my uh, co-writer, Rob Wells, uh, had a, a production opportunity with the Backstreet Boys and he played them that song and they loved it. So it was oh, that. Wow. wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's like um, there's a lot of accidents, a lot of happy accidents in there, you know? Yeah,
0: yeah. So what w- was it like to work with Diana Ross, to be sitting in the same room and writing with her?
1: Um, we had the same business manager, and he called me and said, do you want to work with Diana? I'm like, yes. <laughs> and he said, great, I'll call her and we'll set something up. And I thought well, this would be in the long, ill-defined future, if at all, right? It's one of those, you, you get those calls and you go, yes, and then never, nothing ever happens. Right. Later that afternoon, I was at the gym and my wife called me and went, Diana Ross called me you have to go to her place. I'm like, what? Come home now, but I smell. Come home now, quickly, you know. So I went over to her place in Brentwood and um, I thought there would be an entourage. I thought there would be like handlers and managers and, you know, makeup people and bodyguards. There was one little old gardener in front of the house who opened the door. She leans over the balcony and goes, hey, come on up. She's wearing her sweats, you know. I mean, she still looked fabulous. Don't, don't get me wrong. She right. is playing a And um, so, you know, I'm, we, we talked for a while about what she wants to do. And she says, well, have you got something to play for me? I said, yeah, I do. So she was oh, great. I just got a new stereo system. And she points to this wall of equipment. Well, <laughs> I am not a tech guy. And I thought, uh-oh. She says, yeah, the problem is I don't know how to use it. And I'm thinking, oh, shit. I'm going to lose an opportunity if I don't get this together. I'm like, Oh, no problem. Let me have a go at that. So I'm over there in front of this wall. I'm just I'm loading my CD. I hit play. And then I'm just pushing buttons randomly, just every button that I can possibly push. Now, the next thing I know, she's on her knees beside me, like, you know, and the Ross hair is like, you know, squished in the side of my face. And I'm like, I I I've told this story before. I literally had like an of body experience. You know where you're up above and you're looking down. And you're yeah. going, shit. <laughs> you're with Diana Ross and she's got her hair stuck to the side of your face and you're trying to make her equipment work. You know, <laughs> and so finally, you know, one of us pushed the right button. The music came on. She liked the, the music. We wrote a bunch of songs together. But that's wow. You know.
0: Amazing, amazing. Um, I'm at uh, Orange lounge uh recording studio in toronto late 20 i think last week of december of last year 2020 and Mm -hmm. um we're i'm going to produce a a vocal session with carol pope for for one of my songs which is fantastic huge for me Yeah, yeah i was i was trembling and uh the engineer is spencer sunshine and I yeah. just said, uh, we're waiting for Carol to show up. And I said, so what kind of cool projects have you been working on recently? And he said, well, you know, there's been these sessions with Christopher Ward. And I went, wow, <laughs> isn't that cool? Which leads us to, and I'm, I'm hoping that the songs that you were recording at Orange Lounge were for Same River Twice, were they?
1: They were precisely for Same River Twice, which is my new album. And, uh, you know, I figure like every thirty years or so, I should make a record. <laughs> this was this was my you know coming out party once again. Um, I don't know something happened a couple of winters ago. I, I just stopped writing bits of songs and storing them and holding them for artists, and I started writing songs and following through on them and wanting to sing them myself. Mm-hmm. So I, I I saw Aaron Chattergady, who's a writing partner and producer. And he said, what are you up to? And I said, like, I'm writing these songs. And he said, oh, cool. What are you going to do with them? I said, Aaron, I think I want to make a record. And I thought he would go, oh, that's really nice, Chris. But uh, listen, you know, i I got to see the Hollywood Bowl before I go back home. You know. <laughs> and he, um, you know, he said, fantastic. What, do we, what can I do? Can I play? Can I write? Can I produce? I said, all of the above. And then we hooked up with Luke McMaster, who's another one of our frequent writing and production partners. Right. Super talented guy. They're both from Winnipeg. Right. And should we be facing the Jets next week? I won't hold it against them. <laughs> um, yeah, so um, I just had a bunch of new songs that I'd written. The three of us wrote some songs together. And there's a, a few that are you know, vintage, like over the last 10 or 15 years. Right. Um, and then there's one that is particularly vintage. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes, you do a lovely version of Black Velvet and what what i mean it's it is beautiful it really is and in fact before we talked about black velvet i just want to say that i did listen through the entire album and it's it really truly is gorgeous um Thank it is an <laughs> vintage christopher <laughs> ward i heard you know bits of spark of desire and bits of uh you know some of the work with uh, with alana and uh, a real kind of rootsy kind of
1: nashville
0: feel is that accurate
1: well, I'm not a I'm not a Nashville guy. I don't go there to write. Um, it's not I don't know why. I mean, there's some I have friends there, and I have written there, and there's incredible writing talent. But I don't know. That's, maybe it's the food. I don't I don't go to Nashville. Right. Um, but what they do is they put the emphasis on the song. So in that right. regard, Bernard, I think you're absolutely right on. It's like the song is is number one. It's the foundation. It's the beginning of the process, and um, yeah that's the approach we took
0: and one of the things that really stands out i mean the your songwriting of course is superb as one would expect but your voice christopher it 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 feels like it's sweetened over the years and that, that there is a kind of a patina on it if i can use that word did you feel really good about your voice cuz <laughs> it's, it's the vi- it's the vintage
1: setting on the microphone <laughs> right that's that's the patina <laughs> You know, I'm entitled to that now because, you know, the years have piled up behind me. <laughs> um, but I think about, you know, your voice ages and changes, you know, that's just, you know, you lose a little on the top, but maybe you gain a little on the bottom, right? <laughs> I really
0: believe it's gorgeous. And uh, th- songs like, like Sway really stand out, really show your voice off. What was your impetus for the album? What, what were you trying to capture?
1: Um, well, I didn't really know until I'd gotten pretty far into it exactly what it was becoming. Um, I don't mean to be vague, but, you know, when you're writing songs, you kind of write them because that's what you do and that's who you are. And because it's satisfying and write one one day that feels really, really good. You're going to likely get up the next day and try to write another one just as good or better. And um So I kind of fell in love again with the process of songwriting. It had become something different. It had become a little bit more writer for hire for a number of years. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mean you don't bring your artistry to it. You do, but it's different. And then once I started writing songs that felt really personal, and then, you know, I met up with Aaron and Luke and decided to go ahead and make a record. I, I pretty much knew exactly what kind of record I wanted to make. I wanted it to be a songwriter record, as you said. Mm -hmm. it's um you know it's like telling stories and expressing emotions that are age appropriate you know Mm -hmm. i mean sean mendez is not worried you know uh so we you know we just kind of we wanted to make it loose and live feeling so we didn't even let the musicians hear the songs until the day of the studio session oh wow so i would get out an acoustic guitar run the song down a couple of times they'd make some notes we'd start playing it as an ensemble and then we pressed record and once it was, you know, sounding really good, we move on to the next and we did 13 tracks in four days as a mm-hmm. result. I mean, we spent a lot more time on the vocals and then we had background vocals and did some overdubs and stuff, but we really kept it like nice and, you know, airy. Like the songs really breathe. You can hear all the instruments right? and that's because the guys were all playing live. Now I know we're in the middle of a pandemic, but, You know, Orange Studios, there's an ISO booth and there's lots of baffling. So we were able to really safely use that space, but really draw upon the best aspect of having great musicians, which is the interplay, the way they react to one another and the way that, you know, the the, the best trust the best. And um, it was, uh, you know, it was a really joyful experience for me.
0: And we're hoping it's not going to take another 34 years to release another
1: one. <laughs> Well, you know, I don't want to rush <laughs> long before it's time. Bernard. One of
0: the other things that really stands out in this album are your lyrics. And I mean, you are Thank so you. well known for writing insightful, gorgeous lyrics that work on multiple levels. I just want to read you a couple, two stanzas from one of the ones that really made an impression on me. Uh, I've kept the memories. <clears throat> oh, I lost my father's watch. I lost track of time, forgotten names and faces and my doubts about red wine. Gone is my first guitar and those songs that came with ease. But I can tell you now I've kept the memories. Oh my God, Christopher. (laughs) So beautiful.
1: Where do these come
0: from? Where do the lyrics come from?
1: Uh, I lost my father's watch. Literally. Yes. (laughs) Uh, He's no longer with us, but I, 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 I mean, I know him well enough, I think he would forgive me, but he gave it to me when I was young, and I put it away somewhere, and I lost it. And I I, I started thinking about, I mean, at times, it, it's wistful. You think about life in terms of, you know, the experiences that you've had, but you can also think of it in terms of things that have been lost along the way. Some of them you just shed because that's part of growing up or changing or evolving or whatever. Right. Um, and so that song is really, it is a bit of a chronicle of loss um, and, you know, capped with the romantic loss, of course, of the chorus. Yeah, um, yeah it's you know what? It's just a true story is what it is. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, what distinguishes a good song from a great song, do you think?
1: Boy, that's a tough one. Um, I guess it's durability is one thing, although, you know, you may be walking down the street singing who let the dogs out today. And I wouldn't necessarily say that's a great song because it's endured these years. Um, uh, I mean, I know what makes a great song for me, but that might not be the same for someone else. I, uh, you know, I, I, I like having something memorable. I, you know, people, could, you can be dismissive about that and call them hooks or whatever, but, I like, I like things that are memorable and I like things that, you know, touch people emotionally. Mm. Um, I think you, if you really reach deep and you're, you expect a lot of yourself as a songwriter Mm. and you're willing to tell your story uh, as honestly as you can, then you allow yourself the opportunity to maybe write a great song, Mm. but it isn't you that gets to decide. Right whether it is or not.
0: But do you feel it? After you'd finished Black Velvet, did you know it was a hit?
1: No. no. I had no idea. And I have no idea why that song has had the uh, staying power that it has. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's proven that it does. People still love the song. I mean, artists cover it all the time. I mean, last year alone, like Kelly Clarkson covered it, and Melissa Etheridge covered it, and it was on the Masked Singer show. <laughs> <It's Right. just laughs> tough. you go what? Um, but it's great because it's it says okay. Well, I I struck a chord with people. This song somehow, some way, found its way into people's hearts, into their lives, and it stayed there. And I man, I am grateful and humbled by that.
0: In 2015, I'm, I remember it received the million. Is it the Millionaires Award from ASCAP for more than four million plays? I mean, that's just got to boggle the mind, right?
1: Yeah. um, I didn't know that number. I, I know that BMI has the Millionaires Club, and it was one of the fastest to go to one million. But that was because there was a country version of it out at the same time. Right. So. We were firing on a couple of cylinders there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, On that note,
0: I'm going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about Leonard Cohen as the essence of cool. So stick with us. We'll be right back. Thanks for tuning in to The Essence of Cool. As an independent podcast, we rely wholly and completely on supportive listeners like you. If you like what you hear, please help keep us on the air and throw a few bucks in our electronic tip jar. You can find it on the front page of our website, theessenceofcool.com. We truly appreciate your help. Now let's get back to the show. We're back on The Essence of Cool. We're talking to Christopher Ward, and we're going to talk about your first pick for The Essence of Cool, Leonard Cohen. Leonard is somebody, as a singer-songwriter, somebody who seems to have been somewhere in my view throughout my entire life, right from you know a child growing up in the 60s. I remember his songs on the radio right through to the album he released just prior to his death and, of course, the album that his son Adam released after his death. How did you discover Uh, Leonard Cohen
1: I discovered him as a poet first before I heard any of the songs that he wrote it was some of the first kind of real poetry that I read as a teenager and it just rocked me um Spice Box of Earth Flowers for Hitler those those books were just staggering accomplishments in my you know teenage mind and I mean they still are Um, So that was my introduction to Leonard. And of course, you know, subsequently I read Beautiful Losers, the novel. And then when he had songs out too, it was like, oh my goodness, this is a guy who's really cool, you know, (laughs) being a poet, a novelist, a songwriter. And he he looks good in one of those jaunty hats too. Not everybody can pull that off, right? (laughs) He
0: he looked good in anything, it seemed. Yeah. But he came about. Uh, while becoming a singer-songwriter in a very sort of whimsical way, he he said, what's the quote here? I'd written a couple of novels and they were fairly well-received. i have sold maybe 3,000 copies. But at a certain point, I realized I'm going to have to buckle down and make a living. And the only other thing I knew how to do was play guitar. So he becomes a songwriter on a whim. Yet within a year of him making that decision, he's like this... Uh,
1: Yeah, he was celebrated pretty early. I mean, he he was one of those songwriters, and and it's a wonderful thing that had happened, who was championed by artists of the day. I think Judy Collins was one of his major supporters. Um, But, you know, as soon as people heard the songs, there wasn't really any question about the fact that this guy was, you know, a serious contender. Yeah. I mean, Bob Dylan has said that that literally, Helix Leon Cohen is the only kind of I don't know, it's not competition, whatever the right, right word would be, you know, f- for the best songwriter of all time kind of thing. I'm paraphrasing, but um, I mean, listen to the way that those songs. I don't know if you ever seen the Robert Altman picture uh, McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Yes. I mean, I have never seen a better connection between film and music than in that particular. I mean, there's a lot of examples to draw on. Right. But just the way those songs were utilized in that film, right. that was cool. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and he was so quickly accepted. I was reading um, a quote by Judy Collins talking about sort of dragging him, dragging Leonard to this, uh, fest- this music festival, which included jimi hendrix of all people and encouraging leonard to get up and sing and he gets up and sing uh, sings and within i guess the first 30 seconds the crowd goes nuts whether it was just the voice whether it was the persona whether it was the music combination of all three but they just instantly was instantly accepted yeah that, that rarely happens right
1: I, you know he's just had such an extraordinary life. I mean you know we talk about him being the essence of cool, but I wouldn't want to diminish you know the the artistic accomplishments of this man who like I remember when he, he came to much music for the first time and they gave me the interview I was terrified bet. because his, his his poetry and then his music had meant so much to me and of course you know it's no surprise I'm sure for you to hear that he was, such a gentleman and was very you know open and generous with his his time and just made me feel good as a as an interviewer and as a human being so that was pretty special but speaking of interviews i don't know if, you, if you've ever heard the last one of the last interviews he did was with uh, david remick from the new yorker no I didn't. they have a, there's a show i think it's a podcast called the new yorker radio hour Okay. And David Remnick is the host of it. And he's a very astute interviewer. And as you know, that's that's a gift to be able to do that well. And um, Remnick, this is a little bit of a tangent, but Remnick does this thing where he turns on his tape recorder before he gets to the place he's going. I, I'm not sure why. So he's outside the door and he rings the bell and, you know, it's, he's welcomed in. You can't really tell whether somebody else is welcome to know whether Leonard knows. This is right at the end of Leonard's life, right? Right. And remnant comes in and he says, hello, Leonard says, hello. And then Leonard says, Are you hungry? Can I make you a sandwich? Oh man. And I just, I practically wept. I mean, even just thinking about it. I I didn't I don't know. It just just it was the grace of the man, just the elegance of of this of this man. Yeah. But the elegance of his words. I I now I got j- jotted down a few favorite quotes. Can we do this? Please. All right. So here's one. He writes. He mentions insomnia a lot, and I'm an insomniac, so I'm really. I feel fortified by Leonard's words. <laughs> here's one. Do not afraid to be weak. Do not be ashamed to be tired. You look good when you're tired. You look like you could go on forever. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite song lyric for well, one of them is like a bird on a wire, like a drunk in a midnight choir. I have tried in my way to be free. Wow. Oh my God. Could I just write one stanza <laughs> like that? Piece, you know? <laughs> or from, from there's no way, to, that's no way to say goodbye, your hair upon the pillow, like a sleepy golden storm. I mean, God, what an image, huh?
0: Yeah.
1: And uh, did you ever hear the album famous blue raincoat by Jennifer Warnes?
0: Mm, I don't remember.
1: It is worth pursuing, Bernard. She was one of his backup singers and close friends, and she did an entire album of his songs called Famous Blue Raincoat, and it is gorgeous work. Uh, Uh, No matter how much of a purist you may be about hearing a songwriter in their own voice. Well, I see you there with the rose in your teeth, one more thin gypsy thief. I'm just gonna, and I just indulge me. I got one more. I love this one. This is the perfect letter quote for me Dance me to your beauty with a burning violin. Dance me through the panic till I'm safely gathered in. Lift me like an olive branch and be my homeward dove. Dance me to the end of love.
0: You know what's interesting is that just the words themselves are gorgeous, but to hear the way he sings that lyric, oh, yeah. just, it slays me. Um, I, speaking of uh, Leonard quotes, and I think I might have stole this from uh, your book, Is This Live? Is, I think he is quoted as saying, I feel, this is about being a songwriter, I feel like a starling flying over a garbage dump looking for the shiny bits.
1: yeah. <laughs> What a great quote! <laughs> I know I've quoted that one a lot, and 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 I tried to you know hang on to it too as a totem for songwriting. Yeah. <laughs> great one. Um,
0: yeah. I was thinking about Suzanne, which I guess up until he recorded Hallelujah was probably his most covered song. Oh, um, and, and apparently, he. Uh, correct me if I'm mistaken here. He was duped out of the royalties. Uh, for Suzanne. And apparently he said, and, and this is a, it goes back to what you were saying about him being the total mensch. He said uh, um, it was probably the best thing that he could have done to, to sign away the, the rights to uh, Suzanne, because it would be wrong, and this is a quote, it would be wrong to write a song that was so well loved and to get rich for it also. Hmm, <laughs> who, who would do that? I may have
1: a, may have a slightly different perspective than, than the maestro on that particular point of view. Wow, oh, that's a good one. <laughs> I mean, when does that um, ever I, happen? No, I, don't, I don't know that story. Uh, I mean, of course, there's a well-known and a very unfortunate uh, uh, saga in his life of, of being uh, duped by a, a business manager out of... Uh, just vast sums of money including a, the lion's share of his savings and then 1990s. having to go on a world tour in order to right. uh, you know, kind of get himself back on his feet financially and in well into his 70s. I mean it's
0: he was in a, a monastery for five years and came out to find that his money was gone. yeah Is that what you're talking about.
1: Yeah. yeah it's that's pretty crazy, you know
0: Awful. Um, I just want to deviate from talking about Leonard for a second uh, just to set up my next question about Leonard. What is your definition of cool? I'll just be, as you're thinking about it, this is um, some comments from some of the, um, my, my previous guests on, on the show. Uh, someone said it's great talent surrounded by a shell of great stubbornness. Uh, some have said that uh, cool means uncompromising. Um, others have said that uh, co- uh, being cool means you don't care what the critics or the fans think, you just do your own thing. Uh, often means I think that one contains rules. a lot of truth,
1: that last one.
0: Yeah. Uh, pushing the boundaries, always doing the unexpected and ever-changing. Do you well, it's an amalgam
1: of all of those things. There's elements of truth in every single one of those quotes. Right. I mean, for me, someone who's cool is... Someone who doesn't think they are.
0: So let's uh, let's extrapolate to um, this to uh, Leonard Cohen. What makes Leonard Cohen the essence of cool?
1: Uh, some of it's you know superficial things like demeanor, the sound of his voice, just the way that he carries himself, the view that he seems to project of the world. Even though we may be reading between the lines and we may read wrong, you know. Right. Um, he lives the creative life and that's a goal for me, like that's a huge goal,
0: yeah.
1: is to try to do something new every day, something however tiny it may be, and uh, not judge yourself harshly for the you know, the work that you're doing on an ongoing basis. Mm-hmm. Just as you say in the quotes to do things, I, I can't remember the words, but do things for the right reasons.
0: Right. He seemed to suggest that songwriting was always a chore for him, that it was a difficult process.
1: Well, you know the story of Hallelujah, right? Uh,
0: I understand that there were like 80 verses. Is that true? He's in
1: in the Royalton Hotel in New York City, pounding out 80 verses of Hallelujah before he's happy with it. And then (laughs) the record company, I got to remember the quote, Walter Yetnikoff, who was the head of... um, I guess it was Sony or Columbia at the time, which was Leonard's label. Listen to it and went, What's this? This isn't pop music. We're not going to release this. It'll never sell. It's like, Oh my God. I mean, you know, one of the more sort of monumental accomplishments in, in the world of pop songwriting. But I guess that's it, you know? Keep your cool, even if they don't get you. <laughs>
0: um, what would you say is your favorite? leonard album
1: oh uh, that's a that's a good one probably for sentimental reasons the first one
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know mm-hmm. it was he it's that thing if you can't be new twice right right when you hear that voice singing those songs for the first time it's it's so remarkable yeah that you kind of don't ever go back it was the same thing i remember when i heard dylan for the first time i just thought you can say that in a song, you know, (laughs) it just changed everything. And hearing Leonard was a similar experience.
0: I want to talk about his last album. Uh, Well, his last album released before he died, You Want It Darker. Um, I guess it was released, what, 17 days before he died. It felt to me, I was listening to it again the other day, and, and it felt to me kind of like David Bowie's Black Star. It was his farewell album. He was indeed saying goodbye.
1: Did you get the same feeling? i got to be honest with you. I've never listened to it. And this is—it's this will seem bizarre for somebody who's a fan, as, as I am. It's like I don't want to admit he's gone or something. I know that sounds right. utterly childish. Um, I just, uh, I'm sure I will <laughs> embrace it at some point, but I just wasn't able to, to take that journey with him, you know? Yeah. And similarly, I've never listened to Bowie's last album either.
0: Oh, you had, oh, well, um, as a... Mass- For somewhat
1: different reasons,
0: but... Yeah. As a massive Bowie fan, um, you know, I was champing at the bit to hear Black Star when it was released on his you know, birthday you know, two days before he died and uh, listened to it endlessly and then <coughs> two days later found out that he had passed and what, uh, what a huge impact. But I get the same feeling from You Want It Darker because um, number one, it is a dark album. Uh, sonically, lyrically, it's very dark. Uh, there's a song uh, well, it's the song You Want It Darker uh, the title song and he says Hineni Hineni I'm ready, my Lord, which seems pretty clear that he's saying goodbye, you know, and uh, I wonder if he knew, did he, you know, I know he was suffering from uh, many ailments. He had a lot of uh, spine issues. Oh, I'm sure he knew that he
1: was on the way out. Yeah. Yeah.
0: What is Leonard Cohen going to be remembered for if there's one sort of single thing that pops out?
1: Well, whether it's justified or not i'm sure hallelujah is the song that will stand again it's that thing we we're talking about with regards to black velvet you don't really know why a song connects so broadly and so deeply as it does right but just look at the lineup of artists that have covered um hallelujah
0: huge
1: some of them unexpected and some of them badly but you know nevertheless it, 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 it resonates with people and continues to. So I suspect that, that that'll be the one, the, the biggest thing. Hopefully hopefully, people won't stop there.
0: I, uh, I would assume that your favorite version of Hallelujah is Leonard's. Uh, do you have a favorite cover version? I personally love Jeff Buckley's version.
1: Uh, Rufus Wainwright killed
0: oh, it. Of course he did. Yes, he did.
1: Yeah, he killed it, I thought.
0: Any final thoughts on Leonard before we move to uh, Sade?
1: No, I uh, I think you've shamed me into listening to that last album now. <laughs> so it's I'll so, get back to you. On, I'll get back to you on this one. Okay, Bernard? <laughs> it's so well worth it, Christopher. It's fantastic. I know it's it, it really is childish in my part. It's like I just don't want to think. Okay, I'm listening to Leonard Cohen's last work. Like he still lives for me, you know.
0: Yeah. I I feel you. I feel you. <laughs> on that note, we'll take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about Shaw Day. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you liked and even what you didn't like. Have you got a show or guest idea? Well, drop us a line. Our email addy is info at the essence of We look forward to hearing from you. Now let's get back to the show. We're back with Christopher Ward, and we're going to talk about his second choice as The Essence of Cool, and that's Day. Truth be told, I really don't know much about Day. I know uh, Smooth Operator, Sweetest Taboo, you know, anything that was sort of top ten. I've Your heard. love is king. Yes, yes exactly, exactly. <laughs> but what was it
1: about her that drew you in? Well, to me, she's so obviously cool. That's that's one thing you kind of have to push past. I mean, she just is chill personified right um, Again, it's a question of demeanor and the quality of her voice and her look. you know she's this just exquisitely beautiful woman and and seemingly at home with her own beauty, you know right. um, And the music is you know as languid as she is. like there's a, it's the perfect marriage of the artist and the voice. And the sound that she creates and the themes that she talks about, you know, steadfastness. I mean, she's not dealing in the flashier aspects of romance. You know, your love is king. It's it's still a really nice, simple statement, you know, or lovers rock or those kind of songs. It's like, you know, I'm there for you kind of music. And uh, I I admire that. I mean, let's face it. She also, you know, she went to art school, right? right? Right. She was a model for a while. I mean, she ticks off all the boxes, really. Right. You know? <laughs> I don't know a lot about her either. It's just when, when I was posed the question, choose two artists who you think of as the essence of cool. Well, Leonard was such an easy one because right. well, he just is. Um, and Sade, I think maybe because I'd listened to her recently, I'd put on a Sade record and really, really liked it. And I thought, you know, it's like revisiting something that, you know, sometimes stuff doesn't stand the test of time. And as you well know, things that you loved 20 years ago. And think of how long she's been doing this now, right? Like right. since the 80s. Right. Um, I mean, it's like, you can look at it like her music is timeless. Or you can say that it's locked in the past. It's one or the other, right? You can you can pick. Um I think of her as timeless. And I think she's actually been, in her own quiet way, a very influential vocalist as well. Yeah, How she approaches songs, her willingness to be restrained. She
0: certainly is class, and she's certainly incredibly elegant. She's not, however, incredibly prolific. And, in fact, uh, can go... You know 10 years between albums and one of the things that we talked about in terms of the definition of cool somebody said uh once that you know part of the definition of cool is being ever-changing you know i'm thinking of of bowie for example who was was always morphing into something brand new per you know every, with every album uh but she doesn't she goes 10 years it was uh, she released uh, the fourth she's put six albums out uh, put the fifth album out in 2001 and then didn't put another album out until, until 2010. But in 2010, nine years later, and it's still kind of the same groovy neo soul and still that lovely, elegant mm-hmm. voice. Not much has changed, but it goes to number one in the Billboard charts immediately upon release. How do you
1: explain that? <laughs> because people know what they're going to get from Sade. And they want the way that she makes them feel. They want that again, you know? And by the way, you know, we talked about that essence of cool definition thing. And one of them being the ever-changing aspect. But her willingness to not change, to me, is quintessentially cool as well. Right. Because I'm sure there was pressure from somewhere, I mean, until she sold a zillion records anyway, to... um, evolve the sound or just like do something different or whatever. It's like, well, you got to move again, move with the time. I'm sure she got all kinds of bad advice. Right. Basically she just shrugged and went, no, I don't think so. Right. She's just who she is. And that to me is very, very cool. It's that right. self-assuredness. I mean, and the fact that she waited so long between records again, she doesn't care. Right. <laughs> she makes the record when she's bloody well ready to do it. Right. nobody's going to rush her, doesn't matter how much people want the next one doesn't matter how much the label must be just praying <laughs> that the next quarter has a Sade album in it, right? I mean, she would be one of the few artists who probably would actually sell in decent numbers I mean, you know, right. we're down to a handful, we're down to, you know, like Taylor Swift and Adele and Drake, I think, who actually can sell product, Right. but I think I'd be surprised if Sade released a record and it did not also sell, you know, whether it's streams or hard copies or whatever. Right. But she, I think she just, you know, moves to her own drummer, and yeah. I, I, I like, I like her casualness with, with, right. with her work, and it's been. I mean, we're pretty much due for another one because it's been what ten or eleven years. Eleven years. years now. That's right. But so I think it's time. <laughs> She has released a couple of singles in the interim, I know. Yeah. And she did during that time. I mean, she went, you know, she took time off to raise her son. Right. She moved to Barbados. Was it Barbados or the Bahamas? I can't remember. I don't know. Anywhere. An island somewhere. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that was her priority. It was, there wasn't any question. There wasn't like trying to squeeze it in around touring and recording and being a star. It was like, no. I'm a mother. This is what I'm doing now, right. and um, uh, her son transitioned as well, and right. and and she was really behind him. He thanked her publicly for her support through his transition, and you know, right. I mean, it's, it, it all just adds up to somebody that you think, yeah, this is a pretty cool person. Yeah. I, I I made some notes just on. I was trying to think about where she sits in the pantheon of cool singers. So I thought to me, there's like a little bit of the sensuousness of Margot Timmons.
0: Oh yes, that's true. Yeah.
1: Maybe some of the restraint of Nora Jones. Yeah, And I was also thinking the sort of soft edged soul of Roberta Flack. Hmm. I can see that. And I kind of see her there, you know, And uh, it's a good place to be.
0: Yeah. She said uh, she is said to be sort of one of the forerunners of what we're calling now Neo Soul. Mm. Um, I don't know if she particularly likes that moniker, but I mean, I guess that's an apt description of her kind of music, Neo Soul, would you say?
1: Yeah, I'll go with that. You know what? I'm going to bet she wouldn't care less. Right. I don't think, I, I can't imagine these are the things that... Get Sade upset. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we will never know, Bernard. <laughs> but <laughs> that's my that's my working assumption for her. <laughs> yeah.
0: And speaking of you know marching to her own the beat of her own drummer, she rarely does interviews.
1: Did you ever she, interview? She has no use for interviews. No. <laughs> she, she doesn't like them. She thinks that they are inherently um, not trivial, but uh, not enough in depth. Right. You know it's just too it's it's here and it's gone. She doesn't like that kind of encounter. She did come to much music once, though, did she? How, mm-hmm. Did you interview her? Sadly, I was not I didn't do the interview, and I was not there that day either. so, but Erica did
0: Drake said that he was influenced by her, and particularly that she doesn't sing. Many harmonies, and that her vocals are very clear, and she doesn't do a lot of layering on the vocals. Uh, that really made an impact on him.
1: Yeah, is that part I, of? You know, I, I don't know that quote. Um, I'd heard that he was influenced. I mean, you hear about a lot of people who say they were influenced by her, mm-hmm. um, but that's a really interesting perspective. I, I, I like that because that is true in terms of her her technique. Mm-hmm. Um, there's not a lot of adornment. Um, I, as you know, from our conversation about the recordings that I've done recently, I like spaciousness in recordings. I like to be able to put it on and hear each individual discrete instrument Mm -hmm. and hear the vocalist and not have everything, you know, stacked within an inch of its life. I I just don't like that kind of music. It tires me out listening to it. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's one one more reason why sonically she's a survivor.
0: So what is it? About her ultimately that is cool?
1: I like that she does what she wants. Yeah. When she wants it, in the way that she wants it. She's a woman with a vision and she sticks to it. And I really admire that.
0: What do you think she'll be most known for?
1: Um, I'm sure there'd be a couple of songs, that, if you mean in in terms of, you know, individual musical moments, what she should be remembered for. And we can pick out those songs, you know. Which one would you like to, to have at the top of the list? I don't know. <laughs> Diamond Life. I don't know. Yeah. They're great. Um, I think she will be remembered as as a pop icon, somebody who, uh, you know, didn't play by the rules, uh, who committed to her own artistry and did and, and stay. went the distance with it.
0: Final words about Day. Anything we haven't talked about that you think is worth mentioning?
1: She's really loyal to her musicians. Oh. And I love that too. That's kind of an old fashioned virtue, isn't it? It is.
0: Listen, I want to thank you so much for spending the time. This has been almost an hour and a half and I, I truly appreciate the time and the opportunity to chat with you.
1: It's been a lot of fun. This is a Great conversation. I'll have one of these anytime.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I wish you much success with Same River, River Twice. I think it is a fabulous album. Um, your Thank you very really- much, Bernard.
1: I appreciate it. It was a, a wonderful experience making it. I'm, I'm glad that you've had that response. And I,
0: wanna, I want to urge everyone particularly songwriters to visit your website because it's a virtual treasure trove of information about songwriting. You've got Mm -hmm. uh, a couple of small uh, videos about songwriting. You've got a two hour masterclass about songwriting. Um, Just, just incredible and um, well I
1: love talking about the craft I love the craft but it's also really really fun to talk about it and how it's done and how music is made uh, it fascinates me endlessly
0: Yeah. so ChristopherWard.ca please check it out the new album as of this airing the new album is available and I'm assuming it's available everywhere to stream Spotify iTunes Apple
1: all the usual suspects <laughs> and
0: can you purchase it on your website as well one wants to see Uh, we're going to do
1: vinyl on the website yeah oh
0: nice nice yeah (laughs) (laughs) I'm looking forward to that thanks again Christopher
1: thanks Bernard appreciate it
0: Massive thanks to Christopher for hanging out for nearly one and a half hours. Do check out his website, ChristopherWard.ca. You'll find his new album, Same River Twice, as well as videos filled with great songwriting tips and so much more. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Bernard Fraser saying stay safe and please support independent artists.